Hello everyone, welcome back to the Sanders Brown Centre on Aging Mind Matters podcast series. This week it is my pleasure to be sitting with Dr. Erin Abner, a researcher and associate professor here at the Aging Centre. We're going to go through what we've done in other podcast episodes, a little history, some academic background, what had led Dr. Abner to stay here, and then we're going to try and give you some sort of causal link between her public health background and her research and what we do here at the Sanders Brown Center on Aging. So it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Abner. Thank you. Uh, if you'd be so kind, uh, would you go over just perhaps a little bit of your um, history uh, up until uh, your kind of main graduate education? It's the quintessential dating game show, what's your name and where are you from question. So fortunately for me, I am from Lexington. So I grew up here right where Sanders Brown is. So I've always known, um, at least not always, uh, I guess Sanders Brown probably is just a little bit younger than me. (laughs) And so (laughs) as a child, I became aware of Sanders Brown. I started my career thinking that I was going to be an English professor of English literature, right? And so... I got a bachelor's degree in English and double majored in philosophy and thought that that was going to be fine. I didn't find my master's training in English Lit super fulfilling. It was difficult, and I I have no disrespect to the profession in any way, but it it turned out not to be for me. And so it also turns out that if you get a master's degree in English that you aren't actually qualified to do very much. (laughs) And so I had to do a little soul searching and try to figure out what I was going to do. Happened across an ad for a data coordinator, grant coordinator position on a grant here at the university. And so that was my first research experience was going out and collecting data from high school students in in rural counties in Kentucky. And so fell in love with it, got a master's in public health here at Kentucky with a focus on biostatistics. And then when I graduated in 2006, I came here to Sanders Brown and have been here ever since. And that kind of links into my next question. Why why Sanders Brown? Um, what, What is it that led you here specifically? You could have ideally, I suppose, or realistically taken that education and background anywhere you wanted to go. Obviously, hometown and home place has a strong pull for a lot of us, Uh, but is is that something that was really important to you? Yeah, so this is sort of a multi-dimensional question and issue. So, love the University of Kentucky, so that's one piece. I've been here a long time, always very happy. have a large family. And we are from Eastern Kentucky. So, so very much that home place and family um, priority, right? My father's family, he's one of eight children, and both of his parents died of Alzheimer's disease, which happened before um, I started out here. Uh, my, his father passed away before I started here. His mother passed away. But I knew enough about Alzheimer's to know that the odds of all eight children (laughs) 
from two parents who had Alzheimer's disease, it's, it's not looking good that all eight of them will get, get away. So I wanted to know everything that I could about it. So I so was interested in Alzheimer's disease. The other piece of it was that while I was doing my master's in public health, I was a research assistant um, for a faculty member who used to be here in Sanders Brown. She was a biostatistician, Marta Mendiondo. And she was working with Pamela Teaster, who's a gerontologist, and they were studying elder abuse and vulnerable, vulnerable adult abuse in institutions. And so I worked with them on that study, which is critical, foundational in my thinking of how you know, some of these things work. And so with that relationship, having been a research assistant here, family history of Alzheimer's disease, and then when I finished my public health degree, I was offered a position here permanently. And so that's how I'm here. Fantastic. Interesting, too, you mentioned, and we discussed this a little bit before we started recording, the number of interdisciplinary um, confluences that there are within the center. It's not all pure Alzheimer's disease research, of course. Um, for the benefit of those listening, biostatisticians, gerontologists, pathologists, you, you'll hear it all. And that's what we want you to take away from some of these series, uh, that this is a, a multidisciplinary effort. Um, can, you, can you give us a little bit, Dr. Abner, on your thoughts of the link between an education in public health and the research that we are doing right here? Perhaps we can, we can link that into my next question, which is your research and your work on late with Dr. Nelson using some of the autopsy data that we have. So there's obviously something which is, has piqued your interest and you have been able to unlock, certainly be right at the forefront of unlocking some of the most recent discoveries. It was really interesting being here over the years and seeing the changing understanding of what's happening in the brain when someone has dementia uh, and figuring out that that was very rarely straightforward. And so one of the things uh, which you may have already discussed with others that happens here is the neuropathology consensus conference, right? So we have this longitudinal cohort and people come in for years and years and years and our volunteers are amazing and so selfless and they donate their brains, right, when they die. And so we're sitting uh, in these consensus conferences and it's noticeable, it's very striking that if you autopsy a brain and you survey all of the pathology that's there, it's almost never just Alzheimer's disease or just Parkinson's disease or just cerebrovascular disease. Those people exist, but they're not the usual thing that happens. And so if it turns out that the usual thing that happens is not that we develop, you know, just Alzheimer pathology or just this cerebrovascular pathology, but we have all of those things happening, on the one hand, that's bad news because now that's multiple disease-causing pathologies, right, that you have to try to figure out how to treat or prevent. We haven't had a lot of success <laughs> on any of those fronts so far, right? How do you approach that? 
the good news that we have, you know, sort of untangled is that if it is the case that cerebrovascular pathology, which we associate with very common, uh, what we would call exposures in epidemiology, in terms of diet, in terms of the levels of physical activity that we typically have because of our built environments here in America, it is theoretically possible, right, that we can prevent the cerebrovascular disease. And therefore, our studies have shown that you can have the same amount of Alzheimer pathology, for example, but having that additional cerebrovascular pathology might tip you over the edge into dementia, whereas if you didn't have that, it wouldn't. So the idea then is like, oh, here's this piece of the puzzle that we can directly try to intervene on with the tools that we already have in public health, education, you know, physical activity, environment, those types of things. But I think too that public health has a bit of a black eye right now, and it would be sort of dishonest, but I think not to recognize it, where the CDC essentially right is saying COVID-19 is now an individually managed condition. And there's a lot of upset about that, and I think rightly so, but I think it also ignores that that is essentially what a lot of public health has come down to these days anyway. Your heart health is an individual concern that you address yourself. Your cancer things, your cancer risk is for you to manage yourself. Your dementia risk is for you to manage yourself. And that's not really public health, right? Public health is how do we change the health of the entire population, right? Not by going individual by individual and saying, Erin, you need to exercise more, or James, you need to sleep 12 hours a day or whatever it happens to be. We're just not going to move the needle that way. And so I think we haven't come far enough in this field of Alzheimer's and dementia research of looking at the policy level things that could be done to make real strides in terms of the population health. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll go there eventually. But I think there's a lot of challenges, right, that are looming in the future. We have climate change, which is very real and happening much faster and more mm -hmm. severely than even, you know, the climate scientists had been predicting. That has very real implications for the health of older people, right? Even here in Kentucky, we're expected to be one of the states most affected by climate change. We're going to have very hot temperatures. We're going to have floods. We're going to have fires, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's all very relevant to public health, right? And so my hope is that we will move away a little bit from this individual model of health and recognize that so much of an individual's health is determined by factors that they cannot control, right? And so that would be my, <laughs> my hope, right, mm -hmm. from a public health perspective, that we truly treat things as public health issues and not individual risks to be managed. Uh, I don't know if I got all of your question there. Yeah, I very much think you did because um, my, my takeaway is that 
the research that is happening here at the Sanders Brown Center on Aging on disease pathology opens up new it moves the goalposts it does every it time every does. time you think you know something you find that there's a hundred more things that you don't know that's right and that really ties into our built environment it, it's obvious for anyone um, who has i think some sort of tangible interest in their own health if we didn't eat big macs and drive everywhere things for a lot of people could be wildly different myself included um the link between our environment uh, and our physical health, our mental health, our emotional health is, is so tangible. It's so easy to um, kind of understand, but so easy to overlook. Very much so. That's why it's important, I think, that we have um, the kind of work, the research, the work that you do, uh, we'll lead into that in just a moment, um, to, to kind of bring to bear on this ever-evolving landscape. The more we know, the more we know we don't know. That's right. Ergo, we continue. So your research, um, I'd like to talk a little bit uh, about your work on late um, limbic predominant age-related TDP43 encephalopathy. Yes. Yes. I, I do know how to say that. A Fabulous. master's in social work does know, <laughs> does know what length stands for. Um, <clears throat> utilizing the, the brain autopsy data, I think, we touched on that a little bit, the longitudinal cohort. Yes. Um, perhaps you'd be so kind as to elaborate just a little bit on your involvement with that, working uh, with some of our other colleagues here, Dr. Nelson. I'm going to move towards him towards the end of this series of podcasts and have a chance to talk neuropathology with him and, and his characterization with his colleagues of late. Um, there's also something else of tremendous importance, searching through your uh, publication history, uh, the discovery of the importance of and the naming of quadruple misfolded proteins. So perhaps you'd be so kind as to dazzle our audience just for a little bit longer. All right. Well, this is actually super interesting to me, so <laughs> I'm glad to have a chance to talk about it. So TDP43, as you mentioned correct, correct, correctly, is the, the driver of this pathology late, right? TDP43 was first identified as a protein biomarker that's associated with something that's bad that's happening in the brain in 2006, and this was in the context of ALS, right? And so it's not something that we've known about for very long, and we haven't been able to measure it in brain for that long either. I think about 2009, we started to, to consistently uh, look for that here in our autopsy so at first, it didn't necessarily scream, hey, I'm a bad guy. <laughs> like, you know, it's doing something like obviously ALS, if you're implicated there, that's, that's not good. But for the, for the elderly people, you know, that we followed, it didn't seem like it was causing that kind of a problem. Because it often comes in a person that also has Alzheimer's also has vascular disease, right? And so it's hard to see. So when we first started measuring TDP43 at autopsy, Nelson, Dr. Nelson, as you mentioned, noticed a few cases, I think there were six at the time, that had the Alzheimer pathology, had TDP43, which wasn't, there was no late at that time, we just noticed that we have TDP43 inclusions, 
and alpha-synuclein or Lewy bodies, right, the, the pathology that causes Parkinson's disease and dementia with Lewy bodies. And it seemed like those people were really unusual. Wow, they have all four of these misfolded proteins that cause dementia. And so is there something unique about these people? And we looked quickly to see if they shared some sort of genetic signature, and they didn't. We sort of put a pin in it for a while. But as we kept going through our neuropath consensus conferences, we would notice that here's another person with all four. Here's another person with all four. Here's another person with all four. And so we decided to do this project to like formally say how often do we see these and what does that mean? What does that look like if we consider these people as a group rather than as individual cases, right, in neuropath? And I had a PhD student at the time, now graduated, uh, Shem McCarran, and she led the project where we took all of the people in the autopsy database where we had you know, the data that we needed. And what we found, which was really striking to me, was not only was this quadruple misfolded proteins, right? So we have four of them. We're trying to figure out a easy way to communicate the fact that they have all of these. And so that was what we came up with. QMP, quadruple misfolded proteins. So we found among our participants with dementia that almost 20% of them had all four of those. And these are not, you know, people coming to us because they need specialist care because they have some sort of rare dementia. These are just people in the community, right? And so if 20% of your people in the community with dementia, which we're making a lot of assumptions that the people in our autopsy database are um, somehow representative of people in the community who are not in our autopsy database. So if that assumption is true at some level, it suggests that, you know, again, not just Alzheimer's disease is really common to have all of these misfolded proteins. And so that's bad news <laughs> in many ways because most of the drug trials, for example, to treat Alzheimer's disease, we don't have a, um, a way to know in a person who is living and coming to a clinic that they have TDP43 pathology. So they could very well have it in the brain, but there's no way for us to know it's there. There's no neuroimaging, there's no blood test. There's no neuropsychological test where you say, aha, this person really has this. So you've got people with symptoms that are shared among multiple pathologies in clinical trials, and you're trying to target, for example, just amyloid. And so even if your amyloid treatment was successful and targeted amyloid, you still might not make people better if they have these other diseases that you don't know about. And I think that that has probably had more of an impact in our clinical trials um, and the many failures that we've had um, than we would probably think. Usually they say, oh, well, the people in clinical trials are a bit younger than the people in your autopsy cohort. Uh, many of our participants, for example, survive until their mid-80s or later. But it's important to remember that these pathologies, these diseases, have really, really long what we call preclinical periods where you don't have any symptoms, but you have the disease there. So for example, um, people are used to thinking about this with cancer, right? We know that we get cancer screenings because we can have cancer without knowing about it. It's not causing any symptoms. 
So we don't have that for these brain diseases where we can screen for them and know that they're there, but we can assume, based on what we know, that they have these really long periods of disease developing, no symptoms, and so it's very likely that they do actually have those pathologies when they are in clinical trials. And in fact, at a recent consensus conference, one of our cases was a participant who had all four of those misfolded proteins and was a participant in an Alzheimer treatment trial. Just again, to underline the point, these people, they're, you know, this is very common. And so I would like to see the field move towards that understanding, right? That you can target amyloid all day long, but... It may only be one-fourth of the problem. Exactly, exactly. Or some some interdependent ratio dependent upon other pathologies at the time. Yeah. You've also done um, some considerable research on the link between diabetes and cognitive impairment. Would you perhaps give us a little bit of a rundown on that? Yeah, so... Diabetes is the other fun family history that I have. This is from both my mother's and father's side. So I was very interested in diabetes and its link to brain health. The real sort of story on this starts back in maybe, you know, 2010 or so. There was a movement uh, among a lot of researchers in our field to say, hey, we're seeing some changes in the brain in terms of how it's able to use energy and glucose that reminds us of diabetes and what happens in diabetes. And people started calling Alzheimer's disease type 3 diabetes. And we see in all of these big cohort studies that if you have diabetes, that group of people on average has a higher risk of dementia than people without diabetes, for example. And so always the question is, what is it actually doing to the brain, right? If it's causing some sort of cognitive problem, we can look at the autopsy data and kind of see what might be happening. And so what we find there is that if we look at autopsy-confirmed diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, there is not really an association with diabetes. It does not It does not appear that people who have diabetes during life, if we look at their brain, they don't have more Alzheimer pathology than people without diabetes. In some cases, they tend to have less. What they have more of is cerebrovascular pathology, right? So microinfarcts, lacunar infarcts. So on the one hand, diabetes is a pain. It's a really serious disease, but... (laughs) Can we find a way to intervene on diabetes either by preventing diabetes itself or by allowing people to be able to take steps that might reduce their risk of cognitive problems if they have diabetes? But to be honest, we don't know that yet. We don't know what the steps are that people need to take. We, you know, common sense says optimize your diabetes management and take care of your heart and that should pay dividends for your brain health but there have been clinical trials of different strategies in diabetes like intensive glucose lowering there was a study called the accord mind study many years ago and what they found is that that actually caused brain atrophy in the people with diabetes so 
it's one of those things where you think you're helping, <laughs> but you might actually be hurting people. So I don't recommend you know, any particular strategy for people with diabetes, but I think that that's coming down the road. And so overall, the public health perspective of overall health, maximize those. But it's hard, right? Because 20% of Americans don't have a doctor, right? They don't have a primary care physician. Mm -hmm. I, I would imagine that some of that 20% of people have diabetes. And so, and even people with diabetes can find it difficult to manage, especially as we mentioned earlier, how difficult our environment makes eating <laughs> healthy foods, right? And exercising. It shouldn't have to be such a struggle for us to make those decisions. If it were just part of our daily life, here is the healthy food we eat and here is, here is the exercise that we get as part of our daily lives, you know, that's a lot easier on the individual level to do, right? If we don't have to stop and think every day, oh, I'd really like to have that Big Mac, right? But I'm not gonna do it because I'm gonna be good or what, you know, whatever the <laughs> psychology behind that is. But the reality is, that's in your face all the time, and it's easy to get to, and we're tired, and we don't have, you know, uh, the necessarily the time or the skill to go shopping and make these healthy dinners, and, and so on and so on. And so, again, what we really have currently is to say to individuals, this is what you as a person can try to do to reduce your risk, when what we really need to be doing is to say, how can we change this community to overall improve their health? Mm. And we'll see that probably an increased incidence of the link between a food desert and a reduction in health, particularly in minority communities. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The, um, we, we've done a very good job of condensing down some of your life's work into a very short period of time. <laughs> I would like to, before we go uh, on to, to kind of a, some closing statements, I would like to ask, what about uh, your future research? Where, where would you take it next? Given, given the golden ticket, where would you take it? And where do you think it's going? You know, I have myself involved in a lot of different projects. I will say, so I'll just focus on QMP, for example, and, and what are we doing with that? We are still working to kind of characterize what that looks like when a person has all of those symptoms. Uh, one of the things that we haven't talked about, for example, is how frequent it is for people who have dementia or cognitive impairment to have, you know, these kind of troublesome psychiatric symptoms and even, you know, psychosis, which is just we can't tell what's real, right? So we see things that aren't real or we hear things that aren't real. Um, aggression, irritability, these things can create a situation where a family is not able to care for their loved one at home anymore. Uh, and they can also create situations where people in care facilities are not welcome there, right? If there's constant aggression with your loved one, you know, attacking other people, you can understand how the facility is, mm -hmm. you know, not able to handle that. So we are working to see if we can figure out what are the specific constellations of brain pathology that are associated with these really troublesome neuropsychiatric symptoms and sort of understand those better, what might be able um, to be prevented or treated, even if we can sort of figure out what the pathology is yeah, that's causing that thing. Because it's just such an unmet need. There are no effective treatments 
for these people. Uh, my grandmother was one who really had uh, quite troublesome symptoms, right, at the end of life, and, mm -hmm. and it was a challenge, and I see how challenging that is for so many people. So that's, that's one piece of it that we're working on. The other question for me is, is this actually a bunch of diseases happening independently, or is there some single disease process that will cause all four of those proteins to get misfolded in the same person. So we, we accept it as a given, right, that Alzheimer's disease is a combination of two protein misfolding events, right, amyloid and tau. What would be the reason that these, uh, like all four of them, are not their own thing? And so they might be, they might not be, but it's a important question, <laughs> I think, for is there some sort of genetic signature, for example, that really increases the, the probability that we'll see all four of these misfolded proteins? And if so, could we figure out you know, how to prevent some of them at least or reduce the severity? Because what we see when people have these is that they get cognitive impairment sort of a lot earlier on than we would see with people who have other combinations that don't have all four. They might have two or three. So we get impaired earlier, and we have a pretty fast decline once that um, impairment is evident. So what we call mild cognitive impairment, when we have people that have all four of these proteins, they tend to shoot through it pretty fast, maybe under two years or so, and then spend many years in a, in a period of just profound um, dementia, which is not what anybody wants for anybody, right? I don't want that for my worst enemy. I don't want that for somebody I love. And so that's, I think, where we're going is what, what is going on with this? Is this a disease or is this a bunch of diseases? Interesting stuff. I, I really hope that uh, everybody gets to pay attention to what happens uh, and everybody gets to see from the perspective of a, a member of the general public. Who may well be walking around, uh, and I don't want to. I don't. I don't use this phrase lightly. As a time bomb waiting, waiting to detonate later in my life. Yeah. The the use of biomarkers, the use of imagery, the use of a whole other slew of tests to mark my card, if you will, mm -hmm. earlier in my life to be able to intervene successfully. Yeah, and I think that, you know, there's such a tension still because we have so little um, in, many, in many ways. We have so little to offer people. Like, I, I myself have not been tested, for example, to see what my genetics are. I assume they're probably not in my favor, but I haven't, you know, formally tested that. I just do the things that I know are sort of, you know, the low-hanging fruit, which is, heart health, so I, I make an effort to walk regularly, and my dog is helpful with that. And I try to, you know, prevent diabetes, because I know that I have such a strong genetic predisposition to it, so I, I try to be careful with that. But I think a lot of times, too, it can just feel like despair, right? If I, if I looked at my genetics, and I saw that I had the, the risk gene, the APOE risk gene for Alzheimer's disease, would it change anything for me personally? Probably not. Uh, for a lot of people, I think that that's really scary. But I think there's many, probably more people with the mindset that you have of, okay, if I know about this, I can, number one, try to stop it, number two, plan, 
or how I'm going to do that. I know, you know, I would just be on the lookout for, for those early changes. And, and can I, if I can't stop the inevitable from happening, can I make it happen five years later? That's a huge deal. Very much so. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. If you can get two, three, four more years of honoring the dignity, the value, and the self-worth of the person before it is robbed by disease, I think that's a way. You, even if it was a year, even at six months. Absolutely. To have more with your loved one, it, 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 who wouldn't jump at that opportunity? Right. And so that's what I would say is, you know, yes, that's scary, but it's not not definitive right we can try to push it down if we can't stop it we can push it away mm-hmm. um, in closing any I'm gonna read out this whole great big long statement and we'll just chop it up as we go okay. any any words of encouragement or advice for new scientists uh, in the field especially given your what we've kind of unearthed as a cross-disciplinary uh, approach and the ability to bring your skill from one discipline, or skills from one discipline, and integrate them in study with another. Any any pearls of wisdom that you've received along the way that you'd like to share with the next generation? I think that it's easy sometimes as an early career scientist coming into a field to feel like basically everything's done here. Right? We've got you know, most of the genetic risks have been identified. We have all these risk factors that have been identified, and, you know, people have these large ongoing studies. And so as a new scientist, it can sometimes feel like, well, what is, what is there left for me to contribute here? And I certainly struggled with that too. But I think as we, you know, talked, there's so much. <laughs> there's mm. so much that we don't understand. And I personally expect that we will learn of another, you know, misfolded protein that is causing some of these problems in the brain. I don't think we've learned everything that's in there that's causing problems. So I expect that to happen. And I think our field in general has not reckoned with how climate change will change these things. How, how, how will this modify what we know about dementia and caring for people with dementia? So basically... I would say there's just a ton of work to do. The hardest part is, I think, probably finding a group of like-minded interdisciplinary researchers, right? And so if you're at a, a research university, often there are centers like Sanders Brown where you can do that type of work. And so I think for people who are interested in interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary work in this area, you know, look for your local Alzheimer's disease research center. They're all over the country. Look for, you know, aging centers and and the people where large groups of people are working on these problems because that's the place where there's the most room for you, not the place where you're the only one doing it because then (laughs) it's just you, right? Mm -hmm. And how are you going to, you know, have access to a large cohort of people and, and have all of the expertise in neuroimaging and neuropathology and clinical symptoms and diagnosis and all these things. So you only have to be an expert in what you're an expert in and be open to listening to the expertise of other people as well. And I think everybody, you know, has something to contribute. And so I would love to see much more focus on 
helping people now that have dementia. And so, you know, we're starting to get more, more social science researchers here working on that. But globally, nationally, it's a huge problem. So, so my overall message is there's room for you. You belong here, and we need your help. So Wonderful. Come on. What a great way to finish this podcast. Thank you very much, Dr. Abner, for sitting with us today. Thank you for um, all of these wonderful answers you've given to my re regularly uh, scheduled humdrum questions. But thank you very much for your time, and we look forward to seeing what the future may bring. Yeah, me too. Thanks so much for having me.